Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter uh, 12 is what we're going to be looking at, but I want to back up just a little bit and read the context of uh, this, these verses that we'll be looking at. We'll read today Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. It's found on page 947 in your pew Bible if you're using that. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I I must confess myself, this has been quite a morning. It seems like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and very much, Lord, we feel our weakness as we come to you today. It just reminds us that we need you to speak to us today, the words of life. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, and the many things maybe that have happened with all of us this morning and trying to get to church and, and the things that may still be upon our minds that, Lord, we could focus upon your word today. God, that your spirit would, would grip our hearts and, and open our minds and our affections and our will to receive your word this morning by faith. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, one thing I've learned as a, as a pastor over the years is no matter how diligently I work to try to address and think about all the contingency whenever I'm planning something, uh, there's always something that I overlook. I don't care whether it's a program that I'm planning or a sermon series or whatever it is, but I was reminded of this this past week after I preached just the first sermon in this new series Someone came up to me, and, and, and rightly so, and I appreciate it, and they encouraged me of some additional resources that I might use in my series on sanctification and maybe some things that I could talk about, and like I said, which I appreciated very much, uh, but as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, there's actually this topic of sanctification is so massive in the Bible that there's just no way we can cover everything there is to cover, and so my hope is as we go through this series, and even as we cover just a, a portion of what the Bible talks about regarding sanctification, that it will sort of whet your appetite to want to study this topic more. Uh, but I also hope that in going through this series, you'll be encouraged in your walk with the Lord. I know that uh, as the Bible describes, uh, our, our growth in Christ can, can be spiritual warfare, right? It can be a battle, and we feel that. And I've I've heard you guys share with me some of the things that you're going through and some of the, the, the challenges that God is doing to, to your faith. And, uh, and that's, that's good. But sometimes that can be disheartening and you can feel very battle-weary and worn. And, and I hope that as we go through this and you see what God is doing in your life, that it will, it will encourage you. It will encourage you in Christ. The other thing that I want to just say as, as a, a matter of clarification is last week I said we're going to be really covering the topic of sanctification. And actually that I was reminded this week that's not really exactly true. We're actually going to just look at one aspect of sanctification, and that is what is called progressive sanctification. And that's just a fancy word of saying that process 
by which uh, believers are gradually transformed in their minds and in their affections and their wills and their conduct uh, to to be conformed more and more to the will of God and to the image of Jesus Christ until that day when, when we will go to be with Him in heaven and to be perfect. So, you know, that's really what we're going to be talking about. Now, I think for most of us, when we think of sanctification, that's the aspect of sanctification that we think about. But the, the Bible does also speak of definitive sanctification, uh, which is not really a work of God's grace, as the Catechism talked about last week, but really it is an act of God's grace, much like justification or adoption. You don't become justified as a process. You, it's an act of God's grace. Or you don't become a child of God through a process. God makes you his child. And in the same way, he, there is a sense in which he sanctifies us as an act. Now, I'm not going to be able to, to explain all of that to you, so I've actually posted an article on our website under the resource page, and you can go there and you'll see a link to Definitive Sanctification, and it's an article by Dr. Murray that you can read and, and learn more about that. But we're going to be talking about how we grow, how we are transformed, how God transforms us into the image of his Son. And so I just want to make those clarifications before we jump into our text today. As I said, I, I hope that you are encouraged in, in this study. I mean, to think that God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the, the wholeness of who God is, is actively working to transform His people. That means you. That, that means me. To see us to, to grow in who he is. And so we looked last week at the foundation of sanctification from 1 Peter chapter 1. And this week we want to move on to talk about the sphere of sanctification from Romans chapter 12. And what I mean by the sphere of sanctification is the realm in which sanctification takes place in the life of the believer. Now, as we look at these different aspects of sanctification, um, I, I want you to understand that there's going to be some overlap from week to week. Uh, because we may mention something one week and maybe explain it more thoroughly another week. And because, as I've used the illustration before in the past, you know, it's like a diamond where you look at the different nuances and you hold that up and, and examine different parts of it. And so there's going to be overlap, and, and that's, that's a good thing. It's a good to, to remind us what God is doing. And we see that in the first point that we're going to be looking at today. And our first point that we see in Romans 12 is that sanctification flows from the gospel. The sanctification flows from the gospel. And we see that in the first part of verse 1. We sort of touched on that last week, but I want to explain that a little bit more. As Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, the idea of presenting yourselves holy or of being sanctified and acceptable to God flows from the mercies of God. It's because of what God has done in His mercies that you and I can be holy. Now, what are the mercies that that He's referring to here? Well, it's actually everything that he's talked about in chapters 1 through 11. And, and where I get that is, is Paul says, I appeal to you therefore. Now you guys know why the therefore is there. The therefore is there for a reason. Because the therefore points you back to, every, to the things that came before the verse that you're currently in. And in this case, it takes us back to everything that he's written so far. Unfortunately, we're not doing a study of Romans, so we don't have the benefit of uh, examining everything that Paul has already talked about. But he's talked about mankind's sin, and he's talked about our rebellion against God. And yet, he has spoken of God's great mercies to his people and calling the people to himself. And he says, now, in light of all those mercies, in spite of who you are, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, Sinclair Ferguson points out, he said, he talks about divine imperatives, okay? Now, divine, kids, means it's from God. 
And an imperative is a command. So these are commands of God. God says, love one another. So kids, you're commanded to love your brothers and your sisters. You're commanded to encourage one another. You're commanded to honor your father and your mother. Right? You're commanded in Scripture to work. You know, there's all these things that God gives us that are commands. They're not optional. It's not something where you say, well, if I have time this week, God, I'll get around to that. They're commands. We're supposed to do those things. Now, we sometimes treat them as if they're suggestions, but they're commands. And, and Sinclair Ferguson says, divine imperatives or commands flow out of divine indicatives. Okay, now, here again, a divine, it's a, an indicative that comes from God. And an indicative is just a statement of fact. It's just, if I said that my wife is wearing a brown sweater, that's just a fact. Okay, I'm just stating a fact. And our, the divine commands that God gives us is to flow out of the divine indicatives, the statements about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in behalf of his people. In other words, who God is and what he has done is doing and will do provides the foundation for our response of faith and obedience. You see, God wants us to move from where we are less and less sanctified and less obedient to where he wants us to be, more like Christ and more like God. And notice what he does to spur us on in that movement, in that process. He doesn't just give us a long list of commands and say, now do these things. He provides motivation. He provides power. He offers incentives in what God is doing in the lives of his people. Um, I guess you could say in one sense, as, as especially here in Romans, but it's true in other places of Scripture too, that God gives us his theology. He tells us about who he is and what he's doing and, and who we are and, and, and what he is doing in our lives. And, and that's what we see in Romans chapter 1 through 11 is a lot of theology. But because God gives this in chapters 1 through 11, he does so in giving all this theology to stir up for these Christians a new life. He tells them from chapter 12 on, therefore, because all this theology is true, this is how you are to live. And so I say all that to make this point. If you don't care about theology, you don't care about holiness. You see, it's, it's out of that theology, out of that understanding, out of that indicative, out of those statements about who God is and what he's doing, that then spurs us on in our sanctification. You see, when God urges us to be sanctified, when he urges us in his word to be holy, He's not expecting us to rely on our own resources. He's not expecting us to, to do it with our own ability or our own strength. Because, face it, guys, we're weak. I mean, how many times have you said as a parent, you know, I'm not going to get upset with my kids anymore? Or, or you have said at work, I'm not going to get upset with this person who is just constantly getting under my skin and, and just as you're, 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 you're thinking this in your mind, next thing you know, you're on your knees asking God to forgive you because you've already responded to them in anger. That's the weakness that we experience in, in our lives. And, and we fail. So he's not expecting us to rely on our own resources. Rather, he encourages us to, as Sinclair Ferguson says, to swim, listen to this, to swim in the sea of God's love to immerse our lives in his grace. That is to, to think about what it is that, that God has done to live on the basis of the resources that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ and through his spirit. Now, why is this so important? Why, why is this so important? Because if you ask someone why they're acceptable to God, if you ask maybe the average person, they, and you know why they, they think they're saved or they're going to go to heaven, they will most likely answer in terms of what they are or what they have done. You know, it's, it's, it's about them. And while we as Christians know that's not true, it's by grace through faith, we sometimes can fall back into that trap, can we not? And, and think 
that our relationship with God and, and even our growth and sanctification has to do with what we've done. And we might feel good about our relationship with God because of what we have done, because we feel like we've lived a satisfactorily way in a satisfactory way before God. Not perfect. We recognize we're not been perfect, but we think we've not been too bad, and so we feel like everything's okay in our relationship with God. But then maybe other times we may struggle and we we feel very poorly about our relationship with God because we haven't done enough. And so we feel like a failure. I mean, how many times have you have you thought, I'm I'm just very lacking before the Lord and, and you feel insignificant and you feel like you don't have as much worth. Well, that's really a mindset of your trusting in yourself and looking to yourself. It, it's, it's, it's almost the idea that if I do this, then God will do that. If, if I do my part, then God will respond and, and he will do his part. And therefore, the opposite side of that is if I don't do my part, then maybe God will withhold from me or maybe my standing before God is less. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever struggled with that? That you just don't live up to uh, expectations of what God has, has laid out for us. Or, or maybe expectations of, of how you feel like you should perform before other people. You see, if that's our mindset, then our sanctification will look very different than it will if we understand that actually our sanctification flows from the gospel. It flows from his mercies. And so while we as Christians may know that, that this isn't true, it doesn't depend upon us, we can easily fall back into that worldly way of thinking. And if we are to, to understand the nature of sanctification and successfully pursue it, we must immerse ourselves in appreciating the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ and applied to us in His Holy Spirit. You know, we need to understand that the work of God is greater than just Christ on the cross. And I don't want to downplay Christ on the cross. That's huge. But God is, is, is at work. He continues to be at work even after the cross in our lives by His Holy Spirit. And we must appreciate that because our response of obedience is dependent upon what God is and will do and is and, uh, motivated by God's work in our lives. This alone empowers us to grow in the kind of holiness of which Paul is speaking here in Romans chapter 1. You see, to, to properly grow in sanctification is to know who you are in Christ and to live accordingly. And I think that oftentimes we struggle with that, to understand who we are. And the Bible tells us in those uh, indicatives, in those statements, it tells us who we are as his children. And you may say, yeah, but Pastor Rick, I don't feel like that. I don't care. That's who you are. And you say, yeah, but, but I don't always live like that. I understand, but that's who you are. God is telling you. That is what he has done. And that's who you are. And you are to live as his child. And then when you don't, when you don't live this way, that you go to God and you ask for forgiveness and you accept his forgiveness and you look to him to work in you, to change you. And to understand that that doesn't affect your relationship with him ultimately. You are still his son. You are his daughter. And so if you're here today and, and you're struggling to keep God's commands, maybe you're wrestling, maybe you're feeling that guilt of, uh, of not keeping those commands, I want to encourage you to do an exercise, if you would. To go and to find those commands in Scripture that you wrestle with, okay? And then to read slowly the verses around that command. Not just one or two verses. Read the entire context of, of that command that God gives. And write down every statement in the indicative mood. Okay, write down every statement of fact of what God is doing. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do of what he is telling you about yourself, what he promises. 
and, and to understand those truths and understand because those things are true, therefore you are to obey that command. And as you do that, it helps to destroy both legalism and antinomianism. And, and it helps you to, to remember that sanctification flows out of the gospel. The second thing I want us to see here in our text is that sanctification expresses itself outwardly. As we think about the sphere of sanctification, it, it expresses itself outwardly. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, if you were to ask, where does Christian holiness express itself? If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, he would say, in your body. Now, why? Well, not to be oversimplistic, but because we don't exist um, in our present condition apart from the body. Right? So it, it has to involve the body. We express ourselves only by means of our body. And since this is so, any real sanctification by necessity takes place through our bodies. There's no such thing as sanctification that doesn't involve us physically. It's not just a, a spiritual thing. Our sanctification includes our body as well. And that's why it's so important for us to present our bodies to the Lord. But there is another reason that, that Paul sort of insists on in this text as well. It, it is in our bodies that sin and sinful tendencies and addictions and, and habits have exercised their spiritual destructive influence on us. You see, it's through, it's through our bodies that sin seeks to, to show itself, to, to manifest itself. And the effect of sin shows itself in what we do with our bodies, with our eyes, the things that we look at, with our, with our hands, the things that we do, with our, with our ears, the things that we listen to, with our lips, the things that, that we say, and, and with our feet, the places that we go, with, with every part of our body, sin seeks to express itself. And, and it's through these, the parts of our body that, that these things are the instruments either of sin or of holiness of sin or of holiness. And through them, we sort of express what is in our heart. Now, that, that's not a teaching peculiar only to the Apostle Paul. We see this, Matthew talks about this, James talks about this. The tongue serves as the index of the heart, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So we can sort of tell what's going on inside of us by looking at what comes outside of us. Sin in the heart shows itself in our bodies. And what that means is, is that through our actions, what we do in our bodies, we sort of gain an insight as to what's going on in our heart, in our will, in our affections, and in our mind. Now, as we think about this whole idea of presenting our bodies to Christ, we need to remember this every morning when we wake at the beginning of every new day, that today, this body is for the Lord. It's His to do with whatever He wants. Therefore, I offer my eyes to Christ. The things that, that I look at, do they honor Christ? I offer my ears to Christ. The, the conversations that I listen to, those conversations that I know that are not beneficial, I'm willing to walk away from because my ears belong to Christ. I offer my feet to Christ, my hands, my mouth. I pre present myself deliberately and consciously, and Paul says here even sacrificially. Now, sacrifices aren't really common in our day and time, but they were in the first century. And they were very deliberate, and they were very costly, and oftentimes very bloody. And Jesus himself sort of implores this, um, employed this similar graphic language to describe what's involved in us being set apart to God, us being holy, consecrated to the Lord. He used things like, take up your cross. He used terms like, die. He used terms like, pluck out, like pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin, or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Really very graphic uh, language. Language is sacrifice. Uh, we use the phrase, you know, no... No pain, no gain, right? And, and, and spiritually speaking, that's sort of true. There are no gains without pains. 
And this consecration, this dedication, must be an act of our will. It must be something that we choose to do. Holiness requires deliberate action on our part and the exercise of our will. But brothers and sisters, is it not true that there are times when we just don't want to do what God wants us to do? Sometimes rebellion and temptation comes to our hearts, but um, in those times of weakness, we need to pray to Him for strength, for God to, to work in us. And we need to remember what the saints of old used to do as they described the different parts of the body. They didn't just say the eye, but they spoke about the eye gate, or the ear gate, or the mouth gate, or the hand gate, or the foot gate. Because, you see, they realized that through these different gates of our lives, we are confronted daily by temptation. Because sin wants to express itself in the body. And so we need to be aware of that. But we can, we can face it well armed if each part of our body has been devoted to Christ as a living sacrifice. You see, our, our body is no longer ours, but it is Christ's. Therefore, we can say to Satan or to sin, uh, do not dare to take my hand away from Jesus and cause it to wander from doing His will and carrying out His purpose. Get away, Satan. It's not mine. It's His. And so I want to use it for Him. How does that affect us? Well, you can just imagine... Just imagine that as we think about the things that we watch on TV or the things that we let come into our eyes or the things that, that we listen to or the activities that we choose to do, it greatly affects the way that we live our lives in, in every aspect of our lives. Uh, we may choose to not watch certain movies that at one time we thought was just fine, but we realize these things don't honor Christ. These things are not edifying. You know, maybe there are certain activities that or places that we would choose not to go um, because we know that these are not things that, that edify Christ. That's not... Um, now, now think about that view of the body and the whole thing that it is Christ. That's not the view that our culture has um, regarding the body. We live in a culture of narcissism. We have become lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in particular, our present generation has become obsessed with worship of the body. And we, we, we overemphasize things. Even good things like exercise and diet and beauty. These things become accentuated even more so because we are so enamored with the body. I think even in some ways, while this could be controversial, I think in some ways even tattoos... And things like that can be an expression of over-accentuating the body. Now, why this increased focus in the body? Well, because when secular humanism dominates a culture, it abandons the biblical teaching that we are made in the image of God. And, and under the appearance of wanting to exalt man as the measure of all things, it actually, what it does is it demeans humanity. It, it, it destroys our true dignity and it reduces mankind to mere biological functions. That's what happens in, in a culture that forgoes what God has told us about who we are. And we are surrounded by voices that are, in essence, saying, worship your body, preserve it, beautify it. Now, under this whole thinking is sort of the subtext. It's, it's this whole idea that your body is all you have. It's yours. It's your own. And you can do anything you want to do with it. That's what the world is telling us. But the gospel stands in stark contrast to this. And it calls us to be thankful and to, be, to joyfully worship the Lord in which we give our whole lives to Him, including our bodies. You see... Holiness cannot be hidden, brothers and sisters. It shows itself even in how we use our body. So isn't that like the Lord to, to sanctify us in such a way that it will be seen by those around us as we grow in holiness? So sanctification is to be expressed outwardly, but the third point I want us to see is that sanctification starts inwardly. Look at the second part of verse 2. 
He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, if you ask the Apostle Paul, explain the key to the way the gospel transforms and sanctifies us, his answer might surprise us. It would be a little bit different than what we would hear today in our culture. He would say, it happens in your mind. Now see, in our culture, we focus on what we feel. We focus on the affections. We focus on the things that we desire. We're even commanding people in our commercials, obey your thirst. You know, those are the kind of things that, that we want people to do. Is, is not necessarily to think. We want them to react. We want them to follow their emotions. But that's not what the Bible says. Matter of fact, Paul goes on and he says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mode, in its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Reshape your minds in the way you think, not like the world. You see, uh, years ago, someone shared this phrase with me, which is very biblical, uh, but it is this, that right thoughts lead to right actions, which leads to right feelings. Right thoughts lead to right actions, which leads to right feelings. You see, in our culture, we want to turn that on its head, and we want to say we should have right feelings. Okay, we should be authentic. We should be true to ourselves. The problem with that is those feelings don't necessarily lead to right thoughts or to right actions. Um, so we have to be careful. But he tells us that we should have this renewing of our mind. Now, characteristically, the world squeezes us into its mold by continually prolonged and constant pressure. Right? 24-7 the world is coming into your life. And that's one thing that's uh, different with the internet. In one sense, the world, um, years ago, the world always has been all around us. But in one sense, we could feel like we were able to escape the world and the pressures of the world within our own homes. But now with the internet, we have the world even coming into our homes with television and other um, digital things. We have the world pressing in around us to conform us continually. And in that, Paul urges two things. First of all, non-conformity with respect to the world in which we live. And second of all, transformation by means of a renewed mind. First of all, non-conformity. Now, I, I want you to, to think about for a second how the Bible talks about time, how it divides up time. You know, we think of time in one way, but from the biblical point of view, the whole span of time is divided into two ages. The present age and the age to come is the phrase that the Bible uses whenever it talks about time. The present age is dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. right? And we understand that. That's where we live in, in regards to time. But God promises that there's going to be a time to come, an age to come. Where, where God will rule in his kingdom, the age of renewal, the time of resurrection, the time of triumph, of new life, and a new creation. That's what we're looking forward to in heaven, right? And, and that's the promise that's made. But the beauty of what is at the heart of Paul's gospel is this startling truth, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the birth, firstborn from the dead means something that maybe we've not thought about before. That what he's saying when he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, he means that this new creation has already broken into this world. That which was promised for the future that we would experience someday has come into our world and the new age has already begun. Now think about that just for a minute. What was expected at the end of history has been inaugurated in the middle of it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Christ have already begun to share in this new age. What does Paul say in Galatians? Literally, he said, If anyone in Christ, new creation, 
The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. That's literally what that, the, the translation of that, that phrase is. But he's just reminding us that we live in this new age. As Christians, we have been rescued from the present evil age. We are those on whom the end of the ages have come. We have already experienced the powers of the age to come. All those phrases from Scripture that talk about that age. And for us, the day has already dawned and the light has begun to appear. And we see that in the church, do we not? The church has been affected and, and, and we live a different kind of life. The relationships that we have with others more reflects what heaven says than what the world says. As God is already at work amongst his people. Now, the true light that we experience is, is it's, it's true that it's not the full light of the noonday sun that's shining. It's not like what we experience now is what we'll experience in heaven. I'm not saying heaven is on earth. I'm not suggesting that. This isn't some kind of... Uh, 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 I just lost the term. Anyway, it, it's, it's, I'm not saying that we're going, we will experience something greater in heaven, but we get a taste of it now. And, and even though we don't experience the full light of the noonday sun as we will in heaven, it is also true that we no longer live in the darkness, brothers and sisters. And because we know that we are already living in the early hours of the, that new day, we live as children of light, not as children of darkness. And this magnificent theological vision has some very practical things. First of all, Knowing who we are will shape how we live. Knowing who we are shapes how we live. And I think as Christians, we oftentimes don't know who we are. As I, as I said earlier, there may be things that, that the Bible says that are true, those divine indicatives that we just sort of pass right over because we don't feel like that or we don't view ourselves that way. But because we don't see ourselves as God says, this is who you are, I know because I've made you this way. Then we oftentimes struggle in our sanctification. You see, knowing who we are will shape how we live. But likewise, the opposite is true. Not knowing who we are as Christians will leave us muddled and confused in our lifestyle. And I think that's oftentimes the place that Christians live. And, and part of that, I think, is because the church in America is promoting sort of this easy believism that you just come to faith in Jesus Christ and you believe Him and then one day you'll go to heaven. And there's, they don't talk a lot about what goes on in the middle in between. If they do, it might be just a list of rules. It might be just legalism. You should go to church and you should do this, you should do that. And there's just sort of this skewed, muddled vision of what it means to be a Christian. And so we need to learn this new way of thinking about both the gospel and ourselves if we're to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus by the renewing of our minds. But you know, learning how to think differently is not easy. It, right? And, and if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, you know, and, and you have tried to help people to think differently, <coughs> you understand how hard this is, right? You know, it's just, it's not real simple. Um, and so I want to slow down here just a second and see what Paul says here in this passage. It's, it's a little technical, but it's very practical for our sanctification. Okay? Um, let me just uh, get into a little bit of grammar. Kids, you love grammar, right? Okay, so just hang with me. I know you're just going to be riveted with this part of the sermon. When you talk about verbs, those are actions, right? Things right. That, that happen. Well, there's tenses when it comes to verbs, right? Past tense, present tense, future tense. You're going, okay, Pastor Rick, this sounds like my mom teaching me at home, right? Or my teacher teaching me, right? So you have tenses. But you also have moods. You have the indicative or the imperative. They're statements or they're commands. But you also have voices, which is active or passive. And when we come to Paul's, uh, the text today where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Let me tell you the breakdown of that verb, transformed. Okay? The tense is in the present, but it's a present continuous. It's an ongoing action. So he's telling us 
to be continually transformed. It's not just a one-time event. You know, on Tuesday, be transformed, and after that, you don't ever have to be transformed again. You're good. It's not that, but it's every day, every moment, you are being transformed. The mood is in the imperative. It's a command. Be transformed. It's not like if you decide you want to, but you are to be transformed. Okay? But then the voice is in the passive voice, which refers to something that happens to us, not something we do. Now think about that for a minute. Doesn't that create sort of an interesting dynamic? Here we are to be continually transformed, and it's a command that we are to do, but we are not the ones that transforms us. The transformation happens to us. Now, how can that be? You're commanded to be transformed, but yet you don't, trans you don't do the transforming. How can that be? Well, the explanation is that we are to allow this to take place in our lives by yielding to what God does through His life-transforming Word, which will renew our minds. You see, the truth of the Gospel informs and it illumines our thinking. And it begins to permeate our mindset and it influences our view. Now, you, you probably understand that part of the renewing of the, your mind. There's sort of this intellectual change that takes place. But I want you to understand that as that intellectual change takes place, this in turn sort of recalibrates your affections or your desires to love what we have now come to understand. So it's not just an intellectual exercise. It begins to affect your emotions and, and, and your affections, which then bows our wills and these new desires to be in conformity with God's will. You see what I'm saying? It changes every part of the inner person. It changes your mind and your affections and your will. If you're a Christian Sunday school class, you go, oh, that's what the Bible means when it says it changes your heart. Yeah, I get it now. If you didn't get that, you can go listen to, to a Sunday school class. But this is how the gospel works. There's this change that takes place. And this is why Paul, he preached and he wrote letters. He believed that God's word has power to renew our minds and transform our lives. And as the greatness of the gospel begins to fill and to expand our minds, and as we come to know God's Son through God's Word, by God's Spirit, a process of change takes place in our thinking and our feeling and our desires and our willing and our living. And God's Word and the Spirit work together to powerfully change us. And I say that because it's not just the Word. Because I can preach on Sunday morning and the person here can be greatly affected by the things I say, but the person over here, it totally goes over their head. Because the word in one sense in and of itself has no power, but it's as if the Spirit of God applies that word to our lives that we begin to understand it for what it is and it changes us. And see, Jesus prayed for this to be a reality in John 17, 17. Father, make them holy through your truth. Your word is truth. It is the truth that will make them holy. And so God has given us his truth in, in the scriptures that expresses the power of Christ and the grace of Christ that transforms and renews our way of thinking and then even our whole matter of life. Now, if you're here today and you are struggling to want to obey God, and obey his commands if you have little desire to read God's word if if it's not really a priority in your life you may be tempted just to let this thing sit closed on your desk all week long and, and you don't really see the importance of it but I'm challenging you here today not to move away from the word but to move towards it to move towards it to spend time in God's word reading about it, thinking about it. As you, as you read something in the Bible, don't just read it and go, okay, yeah, okay, I read it. Because then you're like the man who looks at himself in a mirror and goes, oh, what did I look like? I forget, let me go look again. You just don't remember anything. But learn to ask questions uh, about the text. What does this reveal to me 
about the character of God. Well, what, what does this text tell me about my own temptations towards sin? What, what, is this, what does this text tell me about what God has done in my life, what he is doing, and, and, or what he will be doing? What, what do I see in here about what God promises me? And, and, and just begin to spend time with the text. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to renew your mind, to recalibrate your affections, to love what you now come to understand and to bow your will in a new desire for conformity with God's will. You see, we, we have become such an activist generation of Christians that we can scarcely grasp that our first and greatest need is to be, in this sense, passive. We're always talking about what we can do for God. I'm going to take this city for God. I'm going to share Christ for God. I'm going to, you know, fill in the blank. I'm going to do this for God. We want to do something for God. And when it doesn't even dawn on us that what we need more than anything is to be passive. That what we need is being fed the good food of the Word of God so that we may be being transformed. You see, it should sadden us, but it probably doesn't surprise us when, when analysts tell us that there's often little difference between the lifestyle of professing Christians and those who are not Christians. I mean, for the simple fact that we are very undernourished spiritually, brothers and sisters. Our spiritual stomachs have, have shrunk, but, but we've not even noticed it. We, we judge ourselves by ourselves and then we conclude, I'm okay. Right? We look at ourselves and we think, okay, yeah, I'm not that bad. And we just go on. We, we use a, a false measuring stick rather than the measuring stick of, of the Word of God. You see, it seems normal to us to make do with Bible snacks. You know, just snacking on the Word here and there rather than eating a full meal of the Word of God and chewing on the meat of his word. You see, in, in our evangelical subculture, there's a, there's a heavy emphasis on what we must do, including with the Bible, but there's, also, there's almost no emphasis on what our Bibles will do to us. You see, the Bible doesn't simply fashion us. It doesn't just change us a little bit. It transforms us. You see, those whose lives are patterned after the world are, are deeply seated. They're, they're oftentimes set in their ways. And they, they don't need just a mere fashioning after a new pattern. They need to be transformed, totally changed into something different. And that's what God's Word does. It renews our minds. It transforms us. You see, God calls His people to be consecrated, set apart, holy. But if little or nothing is said or done about the renewal of the mind, then that call to be set apart or to be dedicated is really in vain, brothers and sisters. We need to first of all be sanctified internally and it will express itself externally. You see, the sphere of sanctification entail, entails both outward and the inward person. It involves all of me. Isn't that like God? When He does a work, He does it completely. And then uh, the end of verse 2, and, and I'm just really going to mention this, sanctification, it, its effects on us. Um, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a sense in which uh, we know God's will. It's here in His Word. Now, His Word doesn't tell us every single thing, like if I'm going to invest money for my retirement, which account should I put it in, or how much should I put in it, or who specifically should I marry. There may be guidelines about what kind of person you ought to marry, but maybe not specifics. And, and there is a sense in which, you know, as Proverbs talks about, as there is, there is the renewing of the mind, as there is wisdom uh, in the person's uh, heart, that, that that guides us and that leads us in the will of God, even in those things that maybe aren't specifically mentioned in Scripture. But there's also a sense here in which this text is talking about 
As we see God's works of providence in our life, even if they are hard providences, we understand that they are good, acceptable, and they are perfect. And so, brothers and sisters, God sanctifies us, but he does so through us. It's not like let go and let God, like, God, here I am, sanctify me, let me know when you get done. Okay, I have an appointment at 2.30. You know, it's not that. Neither is it that our sanctification is to be done in and of our own strength. God sanctifies us, but He uses us. He uses the renewing of our minds that we might offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. As God's Word says in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Let's bow our heads in, in prayer and, and just reflect upon what we have heard preached this morning. thank you Lord so much for the work of sanctification that you are doing in our hearts uh, Lord we, we just thank you uh, that you have given us the privilege to, to grow in our faith through the renewing of our mind by not conforming uh, to this world that we might offer our bodies as living sacrifice and of course all this comes from your mercies. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, for your wonderful grace and work. And pray, God, that we would give ourselves to these means that you have ordained uh, to see us and to help us to grow. Uh, Lord, we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs>